1971, David Vetter, a young boy from Texas, would be born with a rare disease called Severe Combined Immunodeficiency, or SCIDS for short. And after 20 seconds of exposure to the world, he would then be placed in a plastic isolator bubble where he would live out the much of, his, of the rest of his life completely in isolation. This rare anomaly would result in David being nicknamed the Bubble Boy. David wouldn't be able to exit this bubble because of the germs or diseases that would be lethal to him. And at this time, they didn't have a cure for this disease. And so David would be cut off from, from society at large, really in some heartbreaking ways. He would never know what a hug felt like from his mom without some sort of barrier between him and her. He wouldn't know what it would be like to experience the fresh air outside and the breeze. He would never experience life in what we would call a normal way. What David needed then was a cure. He needed a way to be freed from this life-threatening disease that effectively separated him from everyone else. This real story then connects us back then to the book of Zechariah. Last week, we ended with the hope that God would return to his people. And it was hopeful, joyful news. But it does bring up a very important question that we have not yet considered yet. And that is the question of how God, a holy God, can dwell with sinful human beings. Because like David Vetter's, we all have a very serious disease. We are all infected by sin at birth. And just as David's disease separated him from society at large, so the disease of sin separates us from our life-giving God and really from one another in many significant ways. What we need then, like David, is a cure for our sins against God. We need a cure for the sin that resides in each and every one of our human hearts from birth. We need to be cleansed of the spiritual disease if we are to ever be with our life-giving God. And that's what our text this morning is about. How God will cleanse and redeem his people from the greatest problem there is. Our sin. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Zechariah 3, where we now find the fourth vision that Zechariah has. As we come to this vision, we find now that they are now in the presence of God himself. And it's here that we find something of a courtroom scene that you might see on TV. In this place, we find Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, standing now in the presence of God himself. And now this is Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, not Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. This Joshua would have been well known to the Israelites who were hearing this vision. He was one of their key note leaders. He was the high priest. So as this vision unfolds, here stands their high priest before God. And as we continue reading, we then find the accuser on his right. 
or in our English translations, Satan, which means the accuser. Now, in Jewish culture, the accuser would always stand on the right of the person that they were accusing. They would, they would stand there as they prosecute against the person that they've condemned. And so in this divine courtroom scene, here stands the accuser on the right of Joshua, and he makes his case against Joshua to God. And the charges that Satan brings is that Joshua is not fit to be high priest. He's not fit at all to be in the presence of God whatsoever. He deserves to be condemned. He's unclean. He's covered in sin and therefore not worthy of being saved or redeemed at all. He should be separated from God's presence, judged and condemned. Now as Joshua is acting as the high priest for God's people, these accusations are bad news for them too. For if their leader, if their high priest is disqualified from service, this leaves all of them in a boatload of trouble. I mean, if the high priest, who's supposed to be the purest of all people, isn't pure before God, then who can be? They would all be lost and suffer the same fate if Joshua is found to be guilty here. So Joshua is accused by Satan. And it is not looking good for him or God's people at all. He stands there speechless amid the accusations which are all true. But then something unexpected happens. God comes to the defense of Joshua. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So when the accuser brings these charges to God, the Lord steps in and he rebukes Satan. And he rejects these charges based on one reason alone. He has chosen Jerusalem. In his mercy and grace, he has chosen to save his people. And so what pardons Joshua is God's decision to do this. God had chosen to snatch Joshua and really his people from the fires of destruction. He would snatch them away from the disease of sin, which would surely cause them to burn up and die. But God in love and mercy rescues them. He pulls them out from the fires of destruction. Not because they deserved it, but because of his merciful and gracious decision to do so. So what is highlighted here is God's redeeming grace and his freedom to save whom he wills. It centers on God. And so it's God's gracious choice that rebukes Satan. Because in his sovereignty, in his goodness, he has chosen to redeem him despite his terrible condition. Now God's decision to save Joshua and Israel becomes all the more amazing. Because as verse 3 tells us here, Joshua is covered in absolute filth. Now our translations dumb down the language here for our American sensibilities. Because what is being said here is that Joshua's clothes are really covered in human excrement and vomit. And so it brings to our mind a hideous sight. And it would evoke a putrid smell and odor. 
the smell of death and disease. And what we need to realize then is that Satan's accusations here against Joshua are not baseless. It's not as if he is making something up. Joshua really is covered in disgusting filth. And he is worthy of being condemned, especially since the high priest was supposed to be pure and clean before God. And so what this scene shows us then is the true nature of sin and how God views it from his divine perspective. Our sin, make no doubt about it, our sin in God's eyes is truly awful. Our sin is truly damning. Our sin puts us in a far worse situation than we could ever possibly imagine or think, and we are all covered in this deadly disease called sin. But despite how bad our sin is, what is more amazing is God's gracious decision to save Joshua and his people despite being covered in all of this junk. For his grace is far greater, far wider, far deeper than all our sins combined. And it's the ocean of his gracious decision that swallows up our sins and cleanses us from the inside out. And so this is what is pictured as the angel of the Lord tells those around Joshua to take his filthy clothes off. And by doing so, Joshua's sins are forgiven. They're removed. They're eliminated completely. And he's instead clothed with new robes of righteousness. Festive robes. And if we think back to the story of the prodigal sons, this is what the younger son is covered in too. He's covered with festive robes at the father's Zechariah here is clearly excited and caught up in the redemption and the cleansing of Joshua. And so as all of this is taking place, he then says, put a clean turban on his head too. Don't forget about that. And the most likely reason he asked for the turban to be put on his head is because the high priest was supposed to wear one in his service to God. So in order for Joshua to be fully redeemed and equipped for his position, he needed this turban as well. And so the angels attending Joshua gladly clothe him with one. And Joshua is suddenly fit for service again before God. So we witness the scene unfold then. There are at least three things that stick out to us. And the first is, in the words of Tim Keller, you are more sinful than you ever thought you were. And in case we forgot what sin is, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created. It is to rebel against him by living without thought or care for what he requires of us. And if you want to in-depth dive on that, listen to Aaron's Bible class this morning because he does a great job explaining what sin does. And so all of us are in sin far more than we care to admit. We sin far more then we care to confess, and it's a big deal. Because as the scene reveals to us, it's like being covered, covered in vomit and, and excrement. That's how God sees it. 
So we should be separated from God forever. We should be judged and condemned for the sins we've committed against God and one another. Christian depicts our sins in a deeply disturbing way, and it places each and every one of us in a far worse condition than we ever fear. But as Keller completes this quote, you are also more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. Despite our horrible predicament, God saves us. And he, despite being covered in filth, he loves us and desires to redeem us. His grace extends beyond our sickness and disease, and he saves us. Which brings us then to the final observation we must not miss about this vision here. Notice that Joshua doesn't contribute anything to his sins being forgiven. Joshua just stands there as God does everything. God is the one who rebukes Satan. God is the one that snatches him from the fires. God is the one that cleanses him from his filth. And God is the one who puts new robes upon him with a royal turban. God is the one who makes Joshua fit for service once more. And just as Joshua is cleansed and forgiven and commissioned by God, so we must trust God and go to him to do the same for us. For he is our defender and our cleanser. He is the one who wipes away our sins as we repent of them and place our trust and faith in him alone. He gives us a new identity as those who are righteous before him and he equips us for service to himself. So in life, when you are feeling the heavy weight of your sins upon your shoulder, when you feel like you are not measuring up at all to what God wants of you, when you feel unworthy and undeserving of God and his grace and mercy, don't let these feelings keep you from running to our God. Don't believe the lie that you have to clean up your act first before going to God. Instead, run to God, go to him, for he is gracious and forgiving. And by doing this, he will certainly aid and help you. Just as he defended Joshua and, and cleansed him from his sins and fit him for service, so he will do the same for each and every one of us here. After God defends Joshua from Satan then <clears throat> and cleanses him from these sins, there is then a call to respond. And it's here that we read that the angel of the Lord charges Joshua saying, this is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and you keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. And I will also grant you access among these who are standing here. So in the cleansing and the forgiveness of sins that he has received, there is now a call to respond appropriately to the salvation God has given him. Rather than live in sin, which God saved him from, he's to live in obedience to God as his high priest. And if he does this, God would allow him and his descendants to continue watching over the temple and its courts. They would oversee the worship that occurred there and would continue to have access to God like the angels surrounding them in the vision. And so the call is the same for us as well. When God saves us, he equips us for good works. He calls us to live for him. And so it's vitally important then 
that we notice the order of what takes place here. Notice that Joshua doesn't first clean himself up, and then God makes him worthy of being a high priest or something like that. God doesn't say, obey me first, and then I'll clean and forgive you once you've, you know, like earned it. Instead, God provides salvation to Joshua from Satan and cleanses him from sins. And then after what he's done for him, there is the call to walk in obedience to God. Again, this ordering is crucial for so many different reasons for each of us. We obey God not to merit our forgiveness, not to earn God's favor, but out of gratitude for what he has done for us. We obey God because he set us free from our slave master's sin. We obey God because he's given us a new identity as his children, because his ways are life-giving. We obey God because it's truly what is best for ourselves and others around us. We obey God because this is what he equips us to do. Sometimes we get it twisted. And man, do we get it backwards so often. Rather than be motivated to obey God out of gratitude and thankfulness for what he's done, we instead are motivated by at least two wrong things often. And the first is that we are motivated sometimes by fear of punishment or retribution. Sometimes we obey God so that he won't be angry with me or so he won't punish me or something twisted like that. And so our obedience to God is motivated by fear of a vindictive, angry God who's out there and ready to smack us around if we mess up or we step out of line. And so these evil thoughts come into our head. If I don't do what God wants, he may take away what I have or he might curse my health. Or he might not bless me with that upcoming job interview or my marriage or my kids or even this sermon that I'm preaching. So when we are tempted to sin, what are the first thoughts that come into your head? Is it, oh man, I better obey God so that I avoid hell and judgment? Or is your obedience rooted in the reality? That God has taken hell and judgment in your place. The first type of obedience rooted in fear will only get you so far in life. And it will leave you angry and disillusioned as you come to view God, who is someone impossible to please. But the second type of obedience rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ will keep you going for all eternity. For it is the overwhelming love of God and what he has done for each of us that is the engine that drives our soul into joyful obedience to him. Because even when we fail, and we will fail often, God's grace covers our sins. He cleanses us so that we can get back up and continue serving and worshiping him. So we have to root our obedience then in what God has done for us. That must be our ultimate motivation as Christians because he has given us everything, including the precious son, Jesus Christ. So let the truth be driven into our souls day in and day out by what we think, meditate, and, and even dream about. May this be imposed on us. 
So one wrong motivation then is fear of punishment. But another is that of getting or earning something from God. Many of us sometimes fall into this trap. We obey God and uh, we do it to, to try to earn something from him. We try to put on our best behavior, as many kids do for Santa Claus, right? In hopes that if, you know, we're, we're good enough by obeying him and doing everything that, you know, God wants, he'll reward, reward me with what I really want, with presents and gifts. Whether that's a prosperous life, a beautiful spouse, a, a big house, car, dream job, or vacation, what have you. We obey God sometimes to leverage him into giving us what we want. To try to control him. We use our obedience as, as a token system to merit things from God. After all, I obeyed God. You have to do this for me. But this motivation, too, will quickly dissipate. And we will become disillusioned when things don't go our way. Or when God doesn't give us what we think we need. If our motivation to obey God is rooted in getting something out of God, we'll become the older son and the prodigal sons. And we will become incredibly angry, bitter, and resentful toward God the Father. We'll accuse him of being unfair and unjust to bless those less deserving people around me. And we'll begin to say things like, what good did it do for me serving you, God, if you're going to treat me like this? So if we are motivated then to obey God out of fear of punishment or out of trying to earn something, these motivations will betray each and every one of us in the end. And so we must remember why we obey God. We obey not to get, not to earn, not to avoid punishment, but we obey as God's grateful children because of everything that he's done for us here in this vision. And what is it that he's done for us? He's defended us against the accuser. He's forgiven and cleansed us of our sins. He's redeemed us and he's equipped us. And he did all of this through sacrificing his only begotten son in our place. So we must remind ourselves then of the gospel and the infinite debt which God has erased if we are to joyfully live for God as he's called us to as his people. For it is the gospel which is the engine that powerfully drives us forward in service and obedience to God. Now, up to this point, we've talked much about how God has forgiven Joshua's sins and made him righteous. But what we haven't discussed yet is how God would do this. How is it that God would forgive Joshua's sins and, and justify him? I mean, can a righteous God just let the guilty go free without consequence? Because that's what it looks like here. And like if we see a judge in real life let a murderer go free without any sort of payment, he's unjust. So how is it that God can do this? Because Joshua has paid no price whatsoever for his sins or his crimes against God and others. And so the answer is found then in this last part of the vision. The Messiah to come. A Messiah would pay the price for Joshua's sins and the sins of all who would place their faith in him. As our text continues. 
Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant the branch. And as the angel now explains, Joshua and his colleagues here are going to be a sign pointing in the direction of this servant, the branch. In hearing the term servant and branch, the Jewish listener would have understood this to mean the Messiah. That's what he's saying. They would have thought of passages like Isaiah 42, where God speaks of the Messiah who would bring justice to the nations. He would come with meekness and bring healing to those who are hurting. He would care for the weak and be gentle with the hurting. He would help those who were at the end of themselves, and he would bring them justice. So this is just one of several messianic references to the term servant. But then there is also the term branch used in reference to the Messiah several times in Jeremiah. And the term branch in these passages is almost always connected to the Davidic line and the promise that God made to David. God would raise up a descendant of David who would rule forever and ever. And so Joshua and his colleagues would be a sign of this Messiah's coming. A Messiah who would save his people and exercise justice and righteousness and help the poor and needy, those who were helpless. Now it's here that things get a little weird and um, unclear if you're looking at your text. But it's at this point that God calls us to notice the stone that he is setting before Joshua. A stone with seven eyes. Now I'm just going to tell you, commentators are very divided on how to interpret this scene. And there are a lot of different ideas out there about what this means. I'd be happy to talk with you later about that. Uh, But for now, I'm just going to share with you the one that makes the most sense to me. And that is, this stone is a large foundational stone, a cornerstone. And I think this is the case because God is going to inscribe on this stone something very important, just as the kings of old would do. During the era of the Assyrian and Babylonian kings, they would inscribe important information they want remembered about themselves on these types of foundational stones. And so I think that's what's going on here. God, the king over the entire universe, is inscribing something very important that he once remembered on this cornerstone. But not only will it have an inscription, but it also has seven eyes on the stone. Now, what does this mean? Again, it's debated, but the simplest answer seems to be that that the stone is perfect in every way like God is. The stone is omniscient and can see all things like God. And so to put it in simple terms, it is a divine stone. And I think that's what meant is meant by the seven eyes. So it's a divine stone with a very, very important message inscribed in it. And what does it say? I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. And on that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. And so this is what God once remembered. It's what's inscribed on the stone. He wants us to focus on this amazing, spectacular act of the elimination of sins that he would one day bring through his Messiah. 
and in doing this, also bring harmony to humanity and peace on earth. So what animal sacrifices could not accomplish, despite the countless numbered sacrifice, God would do in a singular day. Sin would be dealt with once for all through this Messiah, and his people would begin to enter an era of peace and prosperity with one another. So this, of course, brings us to the question, who is this Messiah? Who is this Messiah that would bring these things to be? And of course, this person would be Jesus Christ. He would be a servant, the ultimate servant who came to serve and not be served. He would serve in the greatest of ways by giving his life for us. He would be of the branch of David and so have the right to rule and reign as king. He would fulfill the promise made to David that he would have a ruler on the throne forever and ever. He would also be the divine cornerstone for Jesus would manifest to us God in the flesh. And he would be a rock of stumbling to those who failed to believe him and a foundation for us who look to him in faith. And Jesus, the Messiah, would deal with sin in a single day by dying on that torturous cross for our sins. And it would be through his death that sins would be eliminated in the entire universe once and for all. And his resurrection proves that our sins are indeed forgiven. And so as Hebrews 11, 10 and 11 through 12 says, Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And so this vision then is a sign pointing us to Jesus the Messiah. And in it, we find an explanation for how God could forgive sinful people while also being just at the same time. Jesus would take our filthy and grotesque sins upon him on the cross. He would willingly clothe himself with our sins and pay the price by facing the righteous anger of God for us. And in love, Jesus gave us his robes of righteousness won through his perfect obedience that we could never live so that we could stand before the Father as one who perfectly obeyed him. So as 1 Corinthians 5.21 powerfully states, he made Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it would be in this way that we could be with God and God could be with us, his people forevermore. So what we all need then more than anything is this redemption that is offered to us in Christ. For apart from it, we will perish and die in our sins. We will be kept separated from God forever, just as the boy in the bubble was kept from society. And so if you do not know this Christ, this Messiah as your Redeemer, 
Know that if you come to him humbly, he will forgive your sins. If you trust what he's done on the cross, he will cleanse you and put his righteous robes upon you. And in doing this, you too will find redemption and hope. And if you do know Jesus as your Messiah here this morning, then refresh your hearts and minds in what our God has done for us. And respond by living gratefully and joyfully, for he has equipped us for good works to live for him. So let's pray to this end that God would do this for us. Father, we come before you and we are thankful, overwhelmed by your love for us. We would not ever dare to sacrifice our son or our children for an enemy, but you, Lord, sacrificed your only son to save us who were enemies of the cross. And in this, Lord, we are overwhelmed by your grace and your magnificent love to us. And so help us, Lord, to never, ever, ever get over the gospel. May we continue to be amazed day in and day out by what Jesus has done for us. And in response, Lord, may we live for you. Live holy lives that display the glories of your redemption. Help us as your people to do this. And we pray this in his name. Amen.